It's super early on Saturday there, isn't it? No, it's only it's eight AM. This is a this is a late start for us. Oh, that's that's late. What time do you usually get up? Uh normally go for a swim at six. Yeah, I'm I'm probably caught at five. I love oh, them in the mornings. <laughs> are you are you serious? <laughs> yeah. It's uh Are you are you serious? Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. We just interviewed Neil Pesricha, the author of The Happiness Equation. He's also the author of the book, The Book of Awesome, which I believe spent 150 weeks on the bestseller list, which is absolutely massive. It goes without saying. Uh, And it's based on his blog, uh, super popular blog, a thousand awesome things.com. Neil is a happy, happy, awesome dude. So there is a lot we can learn from Neil. Happiness is a good goal that a lot of us don't have, so uh, it's something we can learn from Big Neil. Um, started off with death, crept toward happiness, and there's a lot everyone can learn from this interview. More recently, Neil has created a new-ish podcast uh, in mid-2018 called Three Books, and what he does is he interviews awesome book people, be that authors or publishers or librarians or maybe one day podcast hosts, to talk about their three most formative books, uh, the three books that had the biggest impact in shaping their lives. So there was some great synergies between Neil's show and our show, and we love speaking to Neil, uh, not only about happiness stuff, but also more broadly about books in general and the impact that books have had on his life and some of his favorite and most formative books. Hope you enjoy this chat with Neil Pasricha. Here is Neil. So we'd like to start a, a, the classic story, which what most people in general population have. You know, you go to work, you have holidays, you get married, you get a mortgage, you have some fun, and then sooner or later we degenerate and we we cark it, we die. Um, and one of your quotes in your book, the Book of Awesome quote, says, life is so great that we only get a tiny moment to enjoy everything we see, and that moment is right now. And that moment is counting down, and that moment is always, always fleeting. You'll never be as young as you are right now. So, I'd like to start with just the: what do you think the cost of this willful ignorance is um, that we have, where we just shut our minds to the idea of our time counting down? And yeah, I mean, it's it's a huge cost. I, I am so in favor of embracing death as a as a as a conversation. And I, I wonder partly if it's because of my East Indian heritage. You know, my dad, ever so blunt, you know, would be like, "Well, that guy's dead." You know, like as a child, <laughs> he never couched death in the form that we do in the West, which is using even phrases like "we lost him." We lost two. Where'd he go? You know, my my dad was always like, that guy got killed. That guy died. That, he was more surrounded by death at a young age. His mother died when he was three. He was from a village where they didn't even keep track of birthdays. Um, you know, I won't say poverty, but certainly a poor family in, in India in the 1940s. So death was just part of him like as a conversation topic. So I've adopted that mentality. It's maybe become a tad more... Uh, I won't say philosophical, but uh, you quoted, I think, from my TED Talk, um, or maybe from the happiness equation, but but I do think of it all the time. And the most recent thing I've been thinking about, which is related directly to this question, is I am now obsessed with the number 1,000, okay? Like, I, I, it just sort of came to me the other day. I'm like, well, if you're only allowed alive 30,000 days, well, then 
how many days are in a month? Like 30, mm-hmm. right? So, so I'm like, oh shit. I'm like, oh crap. Um, I'm only alive for a thousand months, right? Like a lifespan is a thousand months long. It's so interesting. Every month that passes, which they pass by so fast, right? It's you only have a thousand of those total. That's your total life. And then just to even make it a little bit more micro, um, this, I like to kind of think of it this way too, is the average person is awake, unless you're you guys because you get up early, but the average person <laughs> is awake for a thousand minutes a day. Just as that. So wow. Everyone is about awake for a thousand minutes a day. If you want to do the math, it's 16 and two thirds hours. I'm still giving you seven and a bit hours to sleep, but you're awake for about a thousand minutes a day. So, so much of my work and my thinking and my books and all that stuff is related to this eternal question of how do you best spend your minutes? How do you best spend your months? How do you best live the most fulsome, intentional, rich, purposeful, life full of meaning that you possibly can? And I hope, I I mean, at least I'm trying to find it for myself, and I hope by sharing with other people, it can help them too. Amazing. And you had your your blog was uh, A Thousand Awesome Things, your podcast, three books we'll talk about later, you're heading towards a thousand books. It's all coming together, this number a thousand. I know. And you know, I think I like that number so much. Because it sounds wildly ambitious when you talk about Mm -hmm. me writing a thousand awesome things on a blog, Uh, but yet it is strangely surmountable. So, see, it's both wildly ambitious and strangely surmountable because you could go for a thousand runs. You could make a thousand homemade dinners. You could play with your kids Mm -hmm. a thousand times. It'll take a while, but you could do it. And that's why the number 1,000 is better than the number 100 or the number 1 million because it's both challenging and achievable. I like it a lot. Um, we started uh, the podcast was a, basically a lot about business books and we um, very quickly then veered a little off track and started reading some other things. So a lot of Stoic philosophy and a lot of Buddhism which kept talking about uh, realizing our own uh, impermanence or even meditating on our own mortality. Uh, and so as you say that you know we've got this limited time you know a thousand months perhaps and we need to try and make the most of it one thing i had on my phone was uh called days of life where it every day would give me a, a notification saying you've got you know twenty thousand and three hundred and seventy one days left to live um <laughs> unfortunately the newest, uh, you're so young <laughs> the newest iphone update actually uh they didn't update the app so it's gone i can't i can't access it anymore but uh what do you think that's like a good idea to to realize because i don't think many people are always thinking you know i've only got a thousand months or i've only got you know twenty thousand days left or whatever it is do you think having that constant reminder is a good thing well i i think it's certainly worth talking about kevin kelly uh founder of wired magazine is is famous for having a death clock um (laughs) for those listening that are interested you know you can you can literally type in death clock as a chrome plugin and it will insert you know i use the momentum plugin right but there's a death clock plugin and you type it in and and sure enough you, you know you type in your age and it looks very much like momentum like a beautiful image that comes over every new browser you open and it says you have you know 11,462 days you know 10 hours 48 minutes and six seconds left to live (laughs) and um you know, when Kevin Kelly said that, I remember him saying that. I think it was on an episode of the Tim Ferriss show back in kind of two or three years ago. I remember thinking to myself, you know, how macabre, like how, how kind of grotesque is that? You know, like, 
like how, how disgusting is that to be so obsessed with death that it, it you're literally reminded of it dozens of times a day but at the same time i like the takeaway which is it forces you to be highly curative you know curative is that the right word Cur- i don't know i don't even know how to say this but you're selecting what you do way more seriously right because uh, I think there's a downside. You could overdo it. You could be like, this lunch has to be the best sandwich ever. You know, like this, this I can only have al dente noodles. Throw these in the trash, you know, because I want it to be perfect. But but there is something to that. I think it helps, to answer your question, get you from A to B. I just don't think going from B to C is necessarily valuable. So mm-hmm. going from a place of complacency to a place of intentionality is good. Going from a place of intentionality to a place of obsessiveness is bad. Yeah, I think uh, I, I definitely overdid it once. <laughs> I was on this meditation app and it had this, this meditation on impermanence. And the first 30 seconds, it says, only do this if, you, if you've got 10 years meditation experience in caves and hardcore, which I definitely don't have. <laughs> anyway, I did it anyway because I was curious to see what happened. And it was a seven-phase meditation where you walk through the jungle, you see your body there lying on the ground, and then it it slowly decomposes infested by maggots infested by maggots <laughs> vultures get into it and all that so you really <laughs> oh my goodness. by the end of it you really realize that you are it is impermanent but i think that was a little bit too far because uh it kind of really put a, a knife through my brain <laughs> <What>? and... <laughs> did that affect you in any way over the short medium or long term i, th- I think it was probably a little bit too far <laughs> for me uh i think uh it's it's very real it's ultra real when you when you're looking at it in those terms of your own body decomposing there so it's almost too powerful um on a spectrum i think meditating on death to a small degree can be very healthy but in, the, in this case I, I don't think i was ready for the the power of it for the next few weeks every time i close my eyes i visualize a vulture attacking my body <laughs> so, can i also just ask a really bizarre technical question which is like did you upload like a 3d photo of yourself like how did it even get a picture of you in there ah uh, no so it's all a visualization it's a visualization meditation uh, okay and... okay okay so okay so you were picturing what you had previously pictured in your brain as opposed to like you update some like uh you upload some avatar and it shows <laughs> that's what <laughs> that seriously next level you know, okay <laughs> yeah yeah Oh man, that's intense though. That is really inter- interesting. I, I am. You made me super curious and like trying it, but also scared of trying yeah. it. <laughs> Absolutely. I like it to to go. A, uh, Get away from a death. Complete, <laughs> a complete. I can't even segue from this. It's just going to be a complete jump. Uh, one thing I I, th- I think is super important. I, I like your uh, your four S's framework for for a good job. So if we're thinking we've only got a, a certain amount of time uh, in life, we need to uh, obviously make the most of that. And obviously, within our time, a big part of that is going to be work. Um, so, can you tell us your, your ideas around around work and and the best like what what's a good job and why? Well, yeah, absolutely. First thing I think of is you, you should never not work. Okay, like so that's the, that's the first thing. People are listening there is like, oh, you know, I don't really like work or I have to do it. Blah blah. I'm like, no, no. I take the opposite approach. I actually say never retire. Mm-hmm. You guys where you live are a lot closer to that famous Okinawa story. You know, um, they have the word ikigai, which means the reason they get up in the morning, and they do not have a word for retirement. And they live about seven years longer than we do. Mm-hmm. So turns out in the Western world. This entirely entirely fake concept of retirement was invented in Germany in 1889, and some dude in charge named Otto von Bismarck 
like the guy who drove the bus in The Simpsons, like Otto. <laughs> uh, he 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 uh, he uh, he's like, yeah, youth unemployment, only thirty percent. Um, old people, they die at sixty-seven. That's the average age, you know. So he's like, sixty-five. We'll make that the number. And if you're old and you want to leave, you don't have to. But if you want to, we'll give you some cash, okay? And everyone's like, what a interesting idea. The United States copied it. Canada copied it. UK copied it. I don't know about Australia. You haven't tell me. The point is. It's like 65 is an arbitrary number. It bears no proximity to anything anymore. You live way longer than that. So I say to your point of why, why is work so important because it gives you what I call the four S's. They all start with the letter S. Okay. First one is social. I'm working right now. Although it sounds like I'm just having fun, which I am. I'm totally working, right? Like I'm, we're talking. This is a podcast. I do a bunch of these all the time. I'm working and I love it. It gives me a social connection with people like you, people I would not have normally met. So I get social fulfillment. Same as like having a best friend to eat within the cafeteria, okay? Number two, stimulation. Always learning something new. Again, I would never have thought about this death visualization of decaying in the forest had I not talked to you. So I learned something new today. And like my day is like, you know, I for work today, I went to a Jeffersonian lunch, like a lunch with 12 people who didn't know each other following a guided conversation where we do not share our background, but we talk about themes and issues that we're thinking about. Fascinating thing I did at lunch today. But like, again, stimulation, something something I'm learning. Uh, third one is structure, a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And the last one is story, being part of something bigger than yourself. So if I'm indeed passionate about helping people live happy lives, and that is what all my books and my podcasts are ultimately about, um, then I could not do that if I wasn't working, right? Like I, I couldn't do that at home or on the golf course. I, I would have to actually be helping others in order to be part of that. So just to zoom out again, it's work is vital to our happiness it is we should never retire we should always be working i don't care about the s of salary but i do care about the other four which are social structure stimulation and story yeah sick i really love that and you write a lot about uh happiness and how we can attain more happiness um with happiness sometimes i feel like if i went to a bar on a tuesday night and had 13 beers and was dancing all night that's a really happy night but it really sacrifices the work component where you get meaning so uh, what are your thoughts between this uh balance of happiness and meaning or are they the same thing or are they or are they different things happiness and what did you say meaning 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 like <laughs> like a M -E -A oh, meaning that's my canadian accent so I, no no i'm sorry about that um yeah. Uh, well, first thing I'd say is, is try marijuana. Uh, <laughs> uh, less hangovers. Uh, okay, no, but uh, uh, Canada, as you probably know, just legal was was the second major country in the world to just legalize marijuana uh, this year. Um, so suddenly, it's it's cool to talk about up here because it's totally legal. Uh, but anyway, uh, by the way, you'll never guess the first country. Do you want to guess? Because I noticed the United States was always saying that, or, or sorry, the, the New York Times was always saying Canada became the f the first major country, and I was like, <laughs> first major country? What? Who was the other country? So I, I again, if you're from Uruguay, I apologize. The New York Times did not consider you a major country. <laughs> Although, congrats on your progressive drug policy. Um, and so, um, uh, here's the thing. Um, yeah, uh, the the definition of happiness that I love. Um, is the joy you feel 
while striving towards your potential. Okay. Does uh, going out and having 13 drinks give you some fleeting pleasure? Of, of course. And that, and that's great. And, I'm, you know, we shouldn't live lives that are so obsessed with not doing that. Like, it's okay to have two pieces of cheesecake. It's okay to, like, go to a party. It's good to live, right? But let's remember the definition, the joy you feel while striving towards your potential. What I'm trying to say is sometimes pain, pain gives us more happiness than pleasure. So training for a marathon, when it's raining, when you've got shin splints, when you are a little bit unsure why you're doing this, but then you ultimately achieve this massive goal. Uh, building a deck in your backyard. It's hot. It's sunny. You're sweating. You know, uh, your partner brings you some lemonade at lunch. Uh, at the end, though, you have a deck that you built with your bare hands with a couple friends that you get to live on for 30 years. See, this is the point. Pleasure does not always lead to happiness. Happy does not happiness. Similarly, does not always mean having pleasure. The bar that you shared is pleasure without maybe some long-term happiness, although I'm fine with your happiness in the short term. Great. You should do it. It's just that happiness, as we define it, does not always include short-term pleasure. So we have to um, sometimes think about the striving part as, as you know, things that do make us happy deep down. I love it. Uh, as we sort of now now transition to towards talking about books um, more broadly, I just want to transition and say that so you, your your projects always seem to be massive. We talked about the the number of thousand before, and that you know your, uh, an early project was the blog, a thousand awesome things, which is uh, you know a thing every day. That's four years, and now your your podcast, three books, you're doing a thousand books uh, every couple of weeks. You're doing three of them, so it's going to take like thirteen and a bit years, I believe, uh, to get to the end. But you're setting yourself these massive um, journeys, I guess. All these projects you're taking on a, a multi year and almost over a decade long. Yeah, <laughs> you forgot the you're crazy part at the end of that. Uh, um, okay, yeah. So, okay, so I think what you're saying is why is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. Like in the, okay, okay, right. So here's the thing. Um, uh, when I started a thousand awesome things, so just as as a, as a ten second backgrounder uh, for those that that don't know it, which I assume is most people, because most people don't know anything in the world. Even the most famous person in the world is not known by ninety nine percent of people in the world. So uh, I started a blog in two thousand and eight. Why? Well, my wife left me, and my best friend took his own life, and those two totally devastating, heartbreaking things happened in a span of a few days. Okay, I decided to blog every single night about one thing to cheer myself up, like flipping to the cold side of the pillow, like peeling an orange in one big peel, like waking up and realizing it's Saturday, uh, like um, you know, finally peeing after holding it forever. <laughs> Oh yeah, and awesome. uh, <laughs> right, exactly. And um, and uh, why did I call it one thousand awesome things dot com? Because honestly, without having the deep philosophical bent around the word a thousand, like I do today, at that time I just thought a thousand was a small number. I was like, you know, you read the paper; it's billions of dollars. This millions of people that like one thousand is tiny. So it wasn't until I started doing it every single weekday, writing an essay, editing it, posting it, getting pictures for it, that I realized, oh man, this is going to take me four years to write if I do one every single like, – so it's like a four-year commitment. I didn't realize that. But to my earlier point, oftentimes that pain 
led to a greater happiness. I achieved the goal. I couldn't believe I did it. Um, I got three book deals, like right from that block. My first three books, the book of awesome, the book of even more awesome, the book of holiday awesome are essentially just printouts of that book, like of that blog and, and stapled together, you know? And, um, so I got three book deals from it. I'm invited to speak at TEDs and and for like the the uh, because of that, I'm speaking for like the royal families in the Middle East, and I'm speaking for big corporations, and and all that stuff, guys, came from deciding to write a thousand awesome things with no ads, no sponsors, no promotions for me, for selfish reasons to feel better as I was going through challenge. So what I'm doing now with with three books, my podcast, and again. It's it's you're right. It's a thousand books, but every show we uncover three of them. So we're doing 333 chapters, and three books are discussed on each show. So the show's called Three Books. Similarly, I've decided I'd like to read 1,000 the 1,000 most formative books in the world. Okay, and to do that, I have there's no algorithm, so I have to ask 333 people which three books are most formative to them. Um, uh, you mentioned it casually. Uh, I'm publishing on the lunar calendar, which means that it, it works out to almost every two weeks, although it turns out that you should never do that because the Apple algorithm really hates you for it uh, when you start publishing at Tuesday at 3 in the morning and then you know the following Friday at 7 p.m. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm doing that because I desperately, selfishly want to know what those books are. I desperately, selfishly want to read them. And I desperately, selfishly want to have a total fun project that makes no money, has no ads, is purely beauty and art for myself so that I can look back on my deathbed and be like, I had fun doing it. And I also believe deep down in my gut, if you ask me honestly, that I think good karma will come from that. And and this conversation that we're having right now is an example of that. I would not have met you if it wasn't for that books podcast and we developed a shared connection. We, we meet other crazy, weird, fun, interesting book people. Mm. And um, I wouldn't have found you guys and vice versa if it wasn't for my podcast. So this is karma. It's it's putting something beautiful into the world and letting the world come back and tell you what it thinks. Yeah. Right back at you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, you've had a... You've had a really cool journey since you uh, had that, I guess, lows in your life, which you mentioned. Um, how have books really helped you on your journey from that stage of the lows to the, I guess, it seems like you've, you know, having a great time now, like you were saying? Uh, yeah. First of all, I don't want to be trite and, and sort of say anything like, um, I wasn't happy then and I am happy now. Like, mm -hmm. I don't want to come across that simplistic. That's not true. Of course, in the past, I had moments of happiness and uh, at times now I have moments of sadness, etc. Life is a practice. Uh, happiness is a, is a journey. It's not a destination, you know? Um, so I don't want to pretend that it's like, I snap my fingers and everything's good. So uh, we get that out of the way. Then, um, uh, books. Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, how much time do we have? Okay. No, I'll, I'll do a quick version. Uh, here's what happened. Um, I went on a honeymoon. So, uh, to, to close off the story, like I was, you know, desperately single living downtown in a bachelor apartment for years. Uh, and over those years they clicked by and eventually I worked up the courage to online date. And year after that, I met someone year after that, we moved in together. And year after that, we got married. So, Flash forward to today, and I'm, I'm married to a beautiful woman named Leslie, who's a teacher here in Toronto in the Toronto District School Board. And we have um, 
been lucky enough that we were able to go on a on a honeymoon for three weeks. Okay, this is the longest vacation I think I ever went on, and we went to the other side of the world, uh, closer to you, Southeast Asia, and um, we uh, we loved it. And you know what? I went on my first ever news fast. I mean, occasionally I'd get up in the morning at the resort or whatever, there'd be like some lame photocopied New York Times. And I'd be like, oh, is this the newspaper? And I'd be like, oh, there's no back on the, there's no crossword puzzle. I'm like, this isn't really a newspaper. <laughs> I didn't really read it. But but my point is when I got home from that three-week vacation, and by the way, I should tell you, she told me she was pregnant on the flight home. Mm-hmm. Like she bought the pregnancy test in the Kuala Lumpur airport, did the pregnancy test in the airplane bathroom, told me she was pregnant on the plane. And the happiness equation, my most recent book, is actually the letter I wrote to my unborn son um, when, after she told me she was pregnant. Okay, So that's a separate story. But you asked about books. I get home to Toronto. I drive to work the next day. I turn on the morning news radio. And honestly, guys, it felt like someone was shattering glass in my ears. Mm. Like I, I, It felt overwhelming. The violence, the fires, the, the sexual abuses, the, the, the terrorism, the wars. I was... I couldn't handle it. It was like I was coming out of a meditative retreat in the forest and I was suddenly being blasted with heavy metal or something, right? It just felt harsh. So I turned off the radio and for a couple minutes I sat in my car driving to work feeling anxiety over being silent. And then after a couple minutes of feeling anxious for being quiet, I had an idea. So I clicked the record button on my iPhone app for audio recording and I said, this is Neil. I'm talking to myself, but here's my idea for an article or for a blog post or whatever. And then a few minutes later, I had another one. And by the time I got to work, um, I had 10. I had like 10 ideas on my phone. And I thought, that's really funny. I eliminated the news and I had ideas. Hmm. The ideas made me want to read books and pick up books I hadn't read in years. Like I'd read, I'd been reading five books a year, nothing, you know, and on a vacation, maybe. And then that year I read 50 books. I canceled my magazine subscriptions. I canceled my newspaper subscriptions. I had five magazines, two newspapers. I had seven things I was getting pushed to me, and I became a puller. I moved from a pusher to a puller. I went to the bookstore. I wandered. I got something that caught my eye. I did the first five pages test. If the voice gripped me, I bought it. And that year I read 50 books from a couple small systematic changes. I then, on a plane ride, was feeling so happy about being a great a great husband and a great son and a great brother, and, and you could tell that this was coming from books. So I, I whipped out an article called Eight Ways to Read a Lot More Books, and on a lark, I submitted it to Harvard Business Review. Well, wouldn't you believe it? They printed the article, and in 2017, um, it became, if not the, then one of the most popular articles on the entire website for the entire year. Like it was the most popular article for like six months straight on, on Harvard Business Review or HBR.org. And the book, the title of the article is just eight ways to read more books. So then I realized, oh, everyone wants to read more. It's not just me. The reason the article is popular, if you type how to read more into Google, like it's the first or second hit, you know, like everyone wants to read more. So, and my, my advice was like, you know, put a bookshelf at your front door, cancel TV, put the, put the TV in the basement, like tell everyone what you're reading. Like, so you have to broadcast it. Like it was basic stuff, but it was enough that it re- made me realize that there's something bigger here happening to me and that the world desperately needs, which is deep, thoughtful, long form content in the best form of compressed knowledge we have ever invented, which is called a book. And so 
now I started my three books podcast. I'm, I'm on this journey to read a thousand formative books. I'm reading my own books on top of that. I've started a book newsletter. I've got like 35,000 people a month get a list of just the books I read every month. And I copied that idea from Ryan Holiday, who I think you guys have had on the show, if I'm wrong. Uh, or if I'm not wrong. Or, maybe soon. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully. Well, well, maybe I can put you guys in touch. Um, love to. um, yeah. I mean, I, I, he um, – he did this. He is like way more people on his email list. But I emailed him. I was like, Ryan, can I copy your idea? He's like, go ahead. So I just like <laughs> literally copied his idea. And now I have a books email. I have a books podcast. I'm talking to people like you, uh, you know, book book lovers, book junkies. I feel like and I've installed another bookshelf at my front door. <laughs> I have canceled cable. I've moved the TV to the basement. I've organized my books in the Dewey Decimal System. And I got to tell you, I feel like the And Leslie and I have had kids. I feel like the best father the best son, the best brother, the best person I can possibly be. And I know I can feel it. It's coming from what I'm reading. Fantastic. Uh, I definitely echo all of those sentiments. I'm just about to fill up my, my second bookshelf, so I need to get a new one as well. We'll We've got a couple of devil's advocate questions about books, but we'll save that for a bit later. While we're, while we're, while we're writing this positive high of, of books, your podcast is where you have someone uh, awesome on to talk about their three most formative books uh, personal favorite of mine was the, the Seth Godin uh, episode if anyone's looking to get started and we want to put you on the spot here and uh, we normally ask this as sort of the last question but what are perhaps your three most formative books or some of, or three of your your favorite books at the moment that we can talk about okay uh, well do you want to go formative or favorite um because there's some, there, it's a it's it's a Venn diagram, but they mm. don't overlap completely. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Here's with formative, so it's more uh, more of a three books format. Okay, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to give you some, uh, but I am also hoping to do uh, an episode of my own yeah. show uh, <laughs> as as I do it because I'm trying to think about them. So, okay, here's one. It's called Sideways Stories from Wayside School by Lewis Satcher. S a c h e r. It's a children's book. I read it when I was maybe in fourth grade. Um, it's absurdist comedy packaged as a children's book. So a, a 30 classroom school was accidentally built on top of each other instead of beside each other. Every chapter is one of the students, you know, of the school. So there's 30 chapters, 30 students. Um, you know, one day they turn the teacher into into uh, an animal by by accident. Uh, a kid like can't do math, but ends up getting all the questions right on the test, and the other kid gets crazy. So it's absurdist comedy packaged into a children's book and i never ever encountered anything like that before i was like you can be funny like you can you can you can make jokes that are just so outlandish that they're funny and <laughs> i tell you that because from probably the age of grade four or nine years old to probably the age of 23 so i want to say something like 10 15 years of my life i wanted to be a professional comedy writer probably because of that book. I, I worked for, I went to university where there was a comedy newspaper. I became the editor of that newspaper. I worked 40 hours a week there. I went to New York City. I, I, I wrote with Simpsons and Saturday Night Live writers. I wanted to be a comedy writer and that book was what triggered that that desire inside me. Fantastic. That's a, that's a now one. I write books that aren't funny. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> man, it's uh, I saw your TED talk. It's you, you do have that comic in you. Um, we did stand up comedy at the start of this year. Uh, what's this? Oh, start of this year, and uh, it's so bloody hard. It's unbelievable. But you've got this natural, awesome humor that uh, it's not. 
it's not like you're doing explicitly trying to be funny. It's just very funny the way you talk. It's like really good. As the Michael Sarah character at the end of the movie, Juno said, I'm actually trying really hard. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I like it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that was a real left uh, left fielder. Uh, actually, maybe that was a, that was a good formative one. Maybe we'll ask you about your your favorite books uh, at the very end, as we usually do. But we got a couple of uh, a bit of a devil's advocate question. Um, good. I, I love this stuff. Here? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Don't don't hold back. Uh, so one of um one of the my favorite books I've ever read recently was Black Swan. And it's oh, <laughs> I was gonna say that. Oh wow, man! That uh, keep going. That hit keep me going. for six. But in the book, Nassim talks about this idea of Umberto's library, and when we read, we might fall under the illusion that we know a lot. Uh, the more books we read, we might might start believing we know a lot. But the idea of Umberto's library is to always have more books that you haven't read. So your library of books unread books is bigger than your read books just to remind us how we know really jack shit in the world and we don't get too confident with what we understand what do you th- yeah what do you think about that the, the more that we learn as you said you you had all these feelings of becoming better and but every it seems like the more you learn the more you realize what you don't know um so can you hit us with some of your thoughts on on books and to why maybe this false or perceived feeling of knowledge might not be the best yeah, totally. Um, so the the more you know, the more you know, the less you know. So you know, the, yeah. that's the sentence <laughs> that I'm thinking sense, of. It. Yeah, the more you know, the the more you realize, or the yeah. more you know that the less you know, right? Because <laughs> the world appears to be so much bigger than it than you actually thought it was. You go from the the unconsciously incompetent stage mm-hmm. to the consciously incompetent stage. It's like learning how to drive. Have you have you heard this model before? So first, you don't know that you can drive. And then you get in a car and you try and you realize you suck at it. So you go from unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent. Then you go to consciously competent. You le- realize you can drive and you're good. At- you're okay. And then you go to unconsciously competent at the end. Right At the end, you arrive home in your driveway after your work and you're like, how did I get here? Like <laughs> yeah. I must have driven here because you're unconsciously competent. Those are the four phases. So what you're pointing out is it's healthy to go from phase one to two, which mm-hmm. is unconsciously incompetent to consciously incompetent, right? So um, I interviewed Tim Urban for three books, and uh, I don't know if you know him. He writes a very popular blog called waitbutwhy.com. Yes. And um, uh, he said to me in that interview, which I I don't think I've even released it yet, uh, but I should. It's just because the lunar count. I'm just waiting for the damn moon to turn. (laughs) Um, uh, he, He said to me, you know, the fact that I've realized that I can't read every book in the world released me release me from the stressful obligation of even trying okay and it was something along those lines and i was like what a beautiful metaphor for life if you understand that it's greater in complexity than you can possibly understand like which is what the Ambrose echo library is then actually that's quite relieving because now you feel like a, a snowflake in the universe you feel like a little part of the pale blue dot you feel like you're here for an infinitesimally short amount of time you feel like you were dead for as mark twain says i was dead being dead will never hurt me i was already dead for millions of years and i didn't seem to mind that at all <laughs> you know and i'm paraphrasing about like it was something like that point is if you realize that you're so small and tiny and no one cares and no one listens and no one notices you uh, and there's a david foster wallace quote about this as well which is um, you'll stop you'll stop caring what people think about you 
when you realize that they seldom do. Mm. Um, and I find that thought mm. that we're talking about to be incredibly liberating. I do not find it to be incredibly, as some people do, stiltifying, if that's the right word, or like suffocating or like nothing I do matters. I find it to be incredibly liberating. I love the fact that in the Seinfeld writer's room, Jerry Seinfeld put up a huge poster of uh, a Hubble telescope photo of of sort of the endless cosmos. And he did that to make them feel less stressed. He's like, nothing we do matters. Like we're just a blip in the universe. And I've heard Judd Apatow say – you know, uh, famous uh, comedy movie director and 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 producer. Uh, he did like Knocked Up and, and movies like that. He says, uh, and he's got a great book called Sick in the Head. Um, he says, I find that suffocating. I find that very limiting artistically. Well, I agree with Seinfeld. I think it's artistically liberating because if nothing you do matters, then you can do whatever you want. If nothing you do matters, then you come up with B movie after Seinfeld, and then you do comedians and cars getting coffee. You have, you know, you have hit bomb, hit bomb, hit bomb. Fine. Man, <laughs> um, hey, B movie is great. Me- I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, uh, sorry. I didn't mean to trash your favorite movie. Um, but uh, you know, my point is, it's like if nothing you do ultimately matters, then you are free. You are free. You can make up a crazy weird podcast like you and I are like we are doing together and and just put it out there. You can you can as Seth Godin would say, you can be a big fan of poof, right? Um, which is the idea that if it doesn't work, you move on to the next thing. You just keep <laughs> going. And uh, that's liberating. So I love I love the book, Black Swan. I agree with the thought. And I, I'm I'm reading the thousand most formative books for fun, not because I think I'll then know everything. Mm-hmm. Love it. Fantastic. Now, it's been a, a great convo as we uh, now move to our, our usual wrap-up episodes. What are your favorite books or some books you can you can recommend that you think people should read? Well, I'm not sure if you've heard of this one, but uh, there's a book called The Black Swan. By, uh... <laughs> it's actually not in our – we haven't recorded We've done it. We've read it. We're going to record an episode on it soon. It's a phenomenal book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I, I really – I, I mean, uh, you just mentioned it, so it's, it seems hilarious to mention it again, but – but it is it is life it was life changing for me. I, I really did change how I thought about life. I went from putting all my chips on one number and spinning the roulette wheel mm. to putting a chip on every number and mm. spinning the roulette wheel and deciding that yes, I'll have my full time job at Walmart and I'll start my blog and I'll do some speaking and I'll start a podcast. It's just like I wanted more legs on my table. Mm. I wanted more side hustles. I wanted more chips on more numbers and i got that from the black swan yeah and just moving more into um you know positive serendipity or maximizing exposure to positive black swans i think that's the the one memory i got so you're just always stepping into uncertain situations that have massive upside but little downside um, as a little taste for the listeners for one of our episodes. Something, something to come up in a couple of weeks. Coming yeah. up yeah. in a few weeks for us. <laughs> good teaser, good teaser. Um, the other one I'll, I'll throw at you is um, I'm interviewing a guy uh, shortly for my podcast named Mark Manson. He wrote a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, uh, which in, I don't know if it's as big in Australia, but in, yeah, in Canada and the US. Yeah. yeah, so here it's like millions and millions of copies, right? Um, and so, of course, I'm reading his three most formative books in advance of the chat, and he gave me infinite jest by david foster wallace which is like 1200 page fiction uh david foster wallace is like a virtuoso macarthur kind of genius grant recipient um you know polymath genius all that stuff he's sadly no longer living as he sadly uh uh took his own life um 
and, and I, so I had to pull Infinite Jest off my shelf and revisit my bookmark, still lodged in it at like page 250 when I had given up, right? And so I was like, I remember the feeling of reading this book being both torturous and exquisite at the same time. David Foster Wallace exposes me to a breadth of emotional states that nothing else does in writing. So most, if you believe that most emotions cannot be defined in words, like there's much more nuanced emotions than like happy, sad, angry, you know, joyful, but you can't quite put a finger on them, which is why the greeting card industry is worth billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. um, um, David Foster Wallace will help you articulate things you didn't even know you realized until you read it. And it is so torturous, exquisite at the same time. Fantastic. That sounds amazing. Uh, one we've read, one we've Do you need another read. book or did I hit your Yeah. Button? No, give us another one then. Yeah, give us another one. Okay. Well, I can, I can keep going. Um, <laughs> I'll go I'll, if you want me to. Um, I'll go with uh, – okay, here's the, here's something that, that I don't know if many of your guests talk about, but I believe that um, the graphic novel category of books is, is still widely unappreciated, mm -hmm. even though they're huge. Um, and, and there's some, there's been some sort of mainstream ones like, like, um, ghost world say by, by Dan Close, which became a movie. Um, and, uh, maybe mouse, uh, by Art Spiegelman or, yeah, uh, uh, right. You know that one, right? So I would just say in that category, I think there's a lot of people that are doing amazing work and, and somebody who comes to mind is, is a guy by the name of Adrian Tomine. Um, his last name is T-O-M-I-N-E. I would love to get him on my podcast. His most recent graphic novel is called Killing and Dying. It came out in 2015. He does a lot of New Yorker covers, but like David Foster Wallace, his books get at stories. They're adult comic books. Like they're 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 not for really. For, I wouldn't let my kids read them because they're so mature. Um, they get at feelings and relationships and situations that you're just like, oh. Like you'd read one of his stories and you won't be you'll lying prone on your couch for half an hour thinking about it. It's incredible stuff. Fantastic. And it's it's not it's not um what I what I don't like about graphic novels is the stuff that is really um fantastical or um alternate reality or sci-fi or space flying. This is like real. Like his it's like a it's like a it's like your favorite dramatic Oscar winning movie in in a book. That's how his stuff reads. Awesome. Well, Neil, thanks so much for sharing your ideas, sharing your book recommendations, talking about your podcast. Uh, the last question is just where can people find you and your work and stuff? I mean, just email me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I know it's so funny to say that, uh, but I just think that the world is so big and so beautiful. And if, if you, um, if I was lucky enough to include you, in this funny and weird and idiosyncratic conversation that we have had and you resonated with it, then I already know that you're my favorite kind of person in the world. And so I, I, ge I genuinely mean it. My email address is neil, N-E-I-L, at globalhappiness.org. So it's N-E-I-L at globalhappiness.org. Uh, people who make it to the end of podcasts are my favorite people in the world, um, you know, that that should that that's a great way to talk and obviously i'm on all the crap online like you know twitter and all that stuff fantastic neil thank you so much thank you guys so much not just for having me but i i love your podcast i love what you do i love your earnestness i love your hardworkingness about it i love your thoughtfulness uh, i love your 
uh, thoughtful questions. I think what you're doing is really, really rare and really special and really unique. And I am um, just so, so happy to be connected with you guys. So thank you so much for the work you're doing. Thanks for listening. We really enjoyed that chat with Neil Pasricha. Uh, as Neil said, his favorite people are the, those that make it through to the end of the podcast. I think ours are as well. We love those people that make it through right to the end. If you made it to the end and you want to check out our top 50 books of all time, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50 and we'll send you that list. We made a version about 12 months ago uh, at the end of 2017 and we're about to redo an updated 2019 edition and I could say at least 20 new books will be on there that we've read this year that have slipped into our top 50 books. So if you want to be one of the first to get that new and updated edition, head to whatyouwillearn.com slash top 50 and we'll send you our list for free.